lots of curious things happen in China. Enter the adventure. I'm glad you're here. Enter at your own risk. You betrayed the family. Cut off his ears. Survive and embrace all the fortune. Profit is our pleasure. All the fates. You will claim every favor you're owed. All the ecstasy. Going to be everything that you could desire in a woman. That belongs. Oh, dear God. To the noble house. An NBC World Premiere miniseries. From the creators of Shogun comes the saga of Hong Kong's most powerful men and women, and the week that will plunge their lives into turmoil. Your Majesty's government is not subject to blackmail. It's not blackmail! Truant Dunross has become the heir to China's most powerful position. Open the Bible and you'll see what you've inherited. Power to control the noble house. The noble house, a family empire that's controlled many generations. The master on top for the past 150 years. They're trying to stay there. The noble house was hardly built on moral foundations. Its foundation is the legacy of an ancient curse. And whoever has the other half of any of these coins... I shall grant him whatsoever he asks. One coin, one favor. With its powerful history comes a ruthless enemy. He and his ancestors deprived me and mine long enough. Quillen Gord is a man with one desire. To pluck the noble house like a dead duck. This week his dream may come true when the noble house engages a deal that will be profitable to one and intriguing to the other. It's a business trip. It's not a romantic holiday. When a man and a woman work closely together, everyone assumes it's sexual. Dunloss will be unaware his new partners could be plotting his destruction. What do you have in mind? A raid on the Noble House. I'll pull the rug out from under the Noble House. It'll fall. You're willing to do this to Don Ross. How do I know you won't do it to me? One never knows, but a hired mistress will be his security. I want you to distract him. Make him fall in love with you, Orlando. Here, sex is not Anglo-Saxon guilt. It is pleasure to be sought after like great food or great wine. This is the week that will decide many fates. It'll be a bloodbath. You asked China to rescue the noble house. That is what I request. You're a communist spy. You betrayed us all. The weak man may lose an empire. You could lose the whole country. No, that is not going to happen. 1750. I'm going down. You still believe you will survive? I have to. Dunross finished his number two. I want to borrow $40 million. Yeah, from God's It's the only way we can survive. The noble house is crumbling and everyone loses. I'm not going to lose. The weak a woman may lose control. He knows the game better than we do. There's no game. He's an animal of... Welcome to the week you'll be talking about for years. The week that will change history. Not just for the noble house, but for all of Hong Kong. You've got to burn everything. Now, enter the adventure. James Clavel's Noble House. It's hey. Sweet West Street. 
Welcome to a special sub-series of the East Green, West Green podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we're going to be looking at select Western film portrayals of and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic discovery is the Podfather of Asian Cinema podcast, that is, the founder of the podcast on Fire Network, Mr. Kenny B. Hello, folks. Co-founder Stuart Sutherland uh, really founded it uh, with me, so I'm not going to take uh, sole ownership and uh, build my own noble house of podcasting. Uh, but I will share that with uh, Mr. Sutherland. So, but uh, hello, folks. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, not too bad. And uh, want to, off the bat, just say thank you, Paul, for introducing me to something I wouldn't have pursued on my own. I wasn't aware that this miniseries had uh, that we're going to talk about existed at all. I knew the author. I know some of his, knew some of his work. But uh, I'm most grateful when I can watch. Uh, think that um, I would not have pursued otherwise. So cheers for that. Excellent, excellent. So if you're coming to us new. Just a little bit of background in developing the programming for this sub-series. We are going to be looking at a range of films uh, and breaking them down into a few subcategories. So here we are in the second episode of this series with a sub-series focus on colonial Hong Kong itself. So in the first episode, we looked at the film Taipan from the novel by James Clavell, which is set in and around the founding of Hong Kong, sort of the 1840s period. And here we are looking at the extension of that, also from James Clavell, with his novel Noble House that was then subsequently turned into a miniseries and broadcast in on television in 1988, two years after the uh, Taipan cinematic release. Um, so that is the focus for this uh, second sort of series on colonial Hong Kong, and we'll be wrapping this up in our next episode. I'll talk more about that later. Um, but for me, this was not a new watch. I've seen this a couple times over the years. I remember watching it back in the day, and I'm dating this, dating myself. Um, I can kind of re- vaguely remember watching Shogun, I'm sitting on the you know living room floor while my parents were watching it, Richard Chamberlain, and you know I was a kid and I was kind of into Bruce Lee and kung fu movies and things. So all I was looking for was samurai action and ninjas. Mm-hmm. And they had a little bit of that in there, but there was a whole lot of Richard Chamberlain uh, schmoozing and and whining and dining and trying to win the girl, um, and that kind of Wait, turned were, me off. Were as you a kid. scarred by? Uh, uh, isn't there like an fa- not not terribly graphic, but there, there isn't like an on-screen decapitation at the beginning of Shogun? Were you like yeah. scarred by that as a kid? <laughs> not so much. I mean, again, I I was kind of used to watching. Um, Kung Fu theater on the weekends and stuff like right. that, and those weren't. From from my memory, those were edited, but they weren't always edited down. So you did get some of the Shaw Brothers kind of super orangey red blood sequences at times. So mm. this, as I remember the decapitation in Shogun, and I could be wrong because it's been a long time, but it was a kind of a bloodless decapitation. Yeah, it was for that's TV. my memory too. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. This is a four-part miniseries with each part running roughly about 90 minutes Um over six hours in total, or 376 minutes of viewing time. So we're kind of breaking the rules a little bit, because normally we talk about a feature film, which is, you know, 90 minutes to two hours or so. And here we're talking about something a little bit extended. So we'll be a little bit more compressed in some of our discussion points, um, because we don't want to make this into a three-hour podcast. 
Um, it's, a, it's the longest prep I've ever done, which in all seriousness, I, I mean, I, I wasn't dreading it at all because I had no conception of whether Noble House was good or bad. And it was, it was you know, I, I always look at my own prep as something uh, that you that you want to evolve. You, you want to be better at it. Uh, you want it to be a challenge sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's a 90-minute giant fat movie and you kind of know how that prep is going to go. But this was different and challenging in a welcome sort of way because I didn't want to have, you know, notes akin to four movies. I make a lot of notes, but but I sort of uh, restrain myself and try to make a suitable amount of notes for the summary and review to follow because, as you said, we're not going to do beat-by-beat breakdowns of each and every 90 minutes times four or anything. So, um, so uh, another reason for me to be thankful uh, to you, Paul, for giving me that challenge as well, as um, well as having some fun. Of course, and I thank you for agreeing to come on and and do this and talk about uh, some of these films because I know these are things that don't necessarily appeal to the common core listeners, I guess, of our normal podcast shows because these mm-hmm. are a little bit more Western-centric and they do have sort of that Western gaze focusing in on Asia, which can be objectionable. And we're going to also talk about some of those points. But before we kind of jump right into Noble House, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about what you do at your site and your podcasts and your shows and your reviews and some of the stuff that you are you know, currently working on that you're excited about? For sure. I mean, the podcast on fire is... You know, if you know your basic Hong Kong cinema, and it's okay if you don't. It's a riffing on the Ringo Lam series of movies called On Fire, City on Fire, Prison on Fire, and thus we became Podcast on Fire. Uh, I, I often tell this story, story that when we formed it all in 07, we, we had a democratic vote thing on the name, which you should have. And I was the little crap that uh, crap turd that voted for, no, 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 it should be the podcast Comef. Iceman Comef, the podcast Comef. And in retrospect, what a ludicrous idea. Because it doesn't roll off the tongue and it really doesn't generate images. Almost that, as like, ludicrous as a Donnie Yen reboot of that same movie, right? <laughs> oh, why don't you, did you have to remind me of that? Heinous thing. But uh, regardless, uh, we uh, review on Podcast on Fire, uh, for instance, we review Hong Kong cinema new and old with a slightly more focus on new nowadays. I try to uh, dip my toe into things that, um, you know, I, I don't follow the modern output as closely as I did back in the day. So I try to f- uh, re-familiarize myself what is the current norm of the industry and style of the industry and uh, how movies do play out because they're China-influenced and financed and they're not as much Hong Kong-based and influenced anymore. So I, I'd like to sort of re-educate myself on the cinema a little bit. But along with my co-host, we, we try to make these discussions of Hong Kong cinema new and old informal, informative and fun and inclusive all at the same time. I never aim for this to be stuffy or uh, uh, elitist or preachy, which I know is the most logical thing. Well, why should you convey any show content in that way well there are shows and reviewers that feel like they they are uh, the greater voice on things and we are not we uh, so so we certainly try to be inclusive and uh, and uh, give our voice on matters and uh, it's 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 fun work and um, 
a what is in the pipeline currently? What am I working on? Well, I, I, I can tell you this. I, I've done a fair few interviews by now, but it's still that preparation for interviews. It's a difficult thing because it's a larger thing. You try to create this and craft this uh, interview narrative, uh, especially if you want to um, talk a little bit about the past and up to the present and all of that. And I'm finding that to be a more difficult but also exciting creative process because you'll get there in the end. It's a quite a sloppy process to begin with because you just you're you're throwing ideas into your notes, and then you do a second pass, then you do a third pass, and then you shape your interview. Um, uh, narrative and i'm finding that to be uh very exciting so if all goes well i'm gonna for once because it's such a such a sausage factory <laughs> this show for once i'm gonna interview a woman that's worked in the hong kong uh, action industry and is doing well for herself uh, currently so um but i don't want to say right now in case that falls through but i have i have a preliminary yes from uh, from a lady in question so that i'm working on that and uh, it's um, i'm feeling good about it so it's uh, gonna be fun excellent excellent and as you mentioned you have been kind of dipping your toes into more recent film fare as it were if you're an anime fan uh you did a podcast on your name uh, mm-hmm. early, Along with late you. last year, yes. Um, you also have done a couple solo podcasts, and you're actually you're, you're tempting me to to take the dip, <laughs> as it were. Well, if well I, you've done if solo I shows to. before. I don't think I have. I don't think I really? have. Um, I no, think I've, my memory is my memory that short that I've uh, listened. To. <laughs> I think I, once I, th- or twice is my vague memory. What, what what's happened is we've done a, a couple split shows where like Kevin was abroad and we couldn't record at the same time. So we weren't really talking to each other. Um, but I don't think I've done a full solo show. That's something I've wrestled with because sometimes Kevin gets super busy going to um, when he when he travels to for work and things. And I've thought, oh, maybe I'll just push a solo review out there. But um, still, I'm still trying to get comfortable with the idea of doing that. But you've done quite well. You've done, for example, uh, a great episode on Shockwave. What was the last one that you did? It wasn't for Shockwave. I reviewed for... Uh, Wolf Warrior 2. Wolf Warrior 2, yeah. And, um, you know, so really... I learned all about what Chinese flag waving is like. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't bother me at all because I've seen that in American movies like time and time again. So it didn't really bother me. It wasn't, as I said on the show, any indoctrination into uh, politics. It's just a silly big action movie, man. And uh, I've seen exactly those kind of literal flag waving scenes before. So Yes, indeed. It's all all good for me. Do you have any um, current planned solo shows in the pipe maybe chasing the dragon but it's depending on time mm. uh, because I, I i have a screener available to me but um and it's out in the uk right now uh, dvd only though yeah so if i have the time but i'm I've just been busy and this thing kept me busy this week for yes. instance because <laughs> it's one movie each night so I, I i didn't cram like two episodes into one night because i would just lose focus you know what i mean so was that your process as well like each part, four nights in a row, making it a four-night uh, four event just like it was. Back I actually broke it up a little bit more. I think I broke it up over the course of a week because I have seen it frequently over the years, just kind of going through and refreshing some of the points and trying to make note of uh, pe- the appearances of some of the smaller parts by actors and actresses that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. All right, why don't we take a quick musical break with the theme music from Noble House. And we'll be back with our discussion of the miniseries itself. 
And welcome back. So for our review this week, again, it is Noble House uh, from 1988. The story, Struens, the corporate dynasty originally founded by Dirk Struen, has seen successive Taipans continue the line and legacy that was originally set out. The latest Taipan, Ian Dunross, must attend to a potential partnership with American firm Parkon while fending off his Hong Kong-based rival Quillen Gort. But when an ancient half-coin resurfaces to revive an old debt that could spell doom for Struens, Dunross must call on alliances old and new to prevent the collapse of the noble house. This is directed by Gary Nelson, um, who is directing for TV, but he's also worked on some films. In 1979, he did uh, the Disney film The Black Hole, which still is one of my favorite sci-fi films um, from you know kind of growing up. It was often compared to... Star Wars and kind of not being quite up to snuff in terms of the technical department, but I loved the quirky kind of robot designs that they had and, and uh, you know, some of the things they did for the sort of artistic design and set decoration. And it's, it's a film that just brings me back to a sense of nostalgia and science fiction from my childhood. He also directed uh, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold in 1986. This is a sequel to the film King Solomon's Mines, which uh, I don't believe he worked on that one, but he did direct the second sequel starring Richard Chamberlain, who then ties mm. back, of course, to <laughs> Shogun. So uh, we've got some Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon or James Clavell or something going on here with some of this stuff. I think this was one of the last things that he worked on professionally, and I, I believe he moved into academia and to teaching um, after this because his filmography kind of ends uh, around this period in, in sort of the late 80s. You know, if you look back on his work, capable, credible director, I think he brings a decent sensibility to some of the look and the feel here of Noble House, but there are some things that do make it a little bit dated, and the fact that it was made for TV rather than being kind of made as a film, which, again, we talked about this last time, not sure if it's really possible, because just in making this for TV, they've already stripped the books down as I mentioned before the the novel clocks in at the audiobook for the novel unabridged clocks in at over 50 hours so you take you've got you know 50 hours of content stripped down to six hours trying to strip that down to it another maybe two hours two and a half hours um, Jeez. you know you're, you're just losing a whole lot of the content that James Clavell has put in do you know by the way if it's if there's any way to know if this was a a hit viewing wise viewing viewing attendance wise on tv or, or did you get a sense of that uh, researching it if it was um, a, a big event well um the only indication that i have because i couldn't find any kind of nielsen ratings or anything is that uh james clavell himself said that he was working closely with i think the person who wrote the screenplay his name is eric uh, berkovici and he talks a little bit about the things that were cut out and, and, you know, some of the necessary changes that were made to make this a fit for TV. And he said he was very much invested in it doing well because if it did well, that meant there would be productions for his other books like King Rat and some of the others in this series, which never happened. Right. So my assumption is it did not do as well as they had in intended. And I'm... Ha I would have to say that this had to be a pretty big budget thing for the time because you're talking about late 80s, 
not a huge headline cast. We'll, we'll talk about the cast in a little bit, but production both in Hong Kong and North Carolina. It looks like my guess is that most of the interior sets, office buildings and things where the filming takes place were done in North Carolina studio, whereas everything else that you see on the street is Hong Kong. Um, there's a a site out there that's dedicated to Hong Kong sort of location film spotting that actually tracks down some of the exterior locations that they use on the street. Um, so you can pinpoint where a lot of this was filmed at uh, in Hong Kong proper. So had to have been very expensive. I'm, I'm guessing it just did not do as well as they had hoped because they were banking on a Shogun-like success, and I don't think yeah. it was a Shogun-like success. So so first watch for you for this and initial thoughts on it? It's, uh, it's quite all right. It's... Running time is is a daunting thing, but I I sort of grew up with the concept of the miniseries. They don't do miniseries and anymore. Like uh, shows are, you know, seasons go on for sometimes yeah. eight ten episodes, and that's as close as we get to the miniseries event. When they call something an event nowadays, like the X Files event, it's still a somewhat of a season, right? So it isn't this focused miniseries where you only got four episodes and then we're done. Yeah, and I remember that was sort of a cool thing when I was growing up. So in reality, not a daunting thing to approach, and uh, it's not my the subject matter, you know, financial rivalry and rivalry between trading companies. Not necessarily what I'm interested in, but I'm I'm still I'm still on board. It's a it's an it's still an easy watch, funnily enough. It's uh, cl- fairly clear and coherent throughout. And despite the credit sequence having 20 characters, you know, <laughs> this character played by this, like, stop it, stop it. I'm not going to be able to keep track of you. Who are you? Who are you? Despite all of that, I think they managed to crawl coherency uh, based on that alone. And uh, it, it, it's, it might not be a riveting watch. But it's, a, it's an easy watch, and I was invested enough, and technically um, I have some notes on on the fact that um, technically it measures up. Um, so I, I would have to say it, 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 the expense is there on the screen, and uh, the location work is certainly very attractive, too, uh, I would say. So um, no, not too bad, but uh, probably won't beat Shogun in terms of involvement, you know, in, based on his books. And Because I remember Shogun, you were pretty keyed into it and you, you're pretty involved with it having said that 20 years ago since i watched it so i don't know if shogun has necessarily survived or anything but yeah. um, I, I think part of the difference here too is that with shogun you had a period piece with elaborate costumings and all, all that goes along with making a period piece and the sort of oh how how exotic that is you know so for the period for an American TV audience, I think they really bought into that, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, this this idea of uh, sort of feudal pre-Meiji Restoration Japan with, again, the, the, the shoguns and the ninjas, but all the other trappings that go along with that. And they're all, you know, speaking a lot of English for the most part. So that was appealing. But here you have the story, which originally takes place in the 60s. So one of the big changes that we have right off the bat is the timepiece is set uh, in the mid to late 80s when, you know, as kind of modern Hong Kong. Easier for them production-wise because 
even though the 60s is still modern Hong Kong, it's not quite as modern as the 80s. So they would have mm -hmm. had to be a lot more careful with production design, um, you know, with things like automobiles and clothing and, and a lot of that. They probably wouldn't have been able to do quite as much exterior location stuff. Um, and it probably yeah. would have had a much bigger budget. Mm -hmm. um, so you have that going for you. But because it's modern, it's, you know, it's like, oh, OK, modern Hong Kong. That's interesting, but maybe for an American audience at this time, not as interesting as a, a glossy period piece. And I don't no, think no. you had that sense of Hong Kong mm. as this place, you know, Jackie Chan was still, you know, Jackie Chan movies were still kind of just getting kicked off in terms of his popularity uh, in the States. You didn't have this idea of a Hong Kong cinema as sort of a sub-popular culture. Mm. I think yeah, they try to hinge more on the fact that the head of business, you know, the Taipan, that's rooted in quite in tradition. It's not uh, the, the handoff from Taipan to Taipan. It's not this um, modern handoff or anything right. as as the movie's prologue shows. And I and I guess the, that's a hook. And I, I don't have to say that's not a bad hook. I kind of found that interesting. It's certainly nothing that the movie Taipan explored. I think the the, the coin thing they just sort of uh, mentioned a little bit, and then then they had to cram some other stuff in that movie's two hours. But um, it was kind of it was kind of interesting and decent enough to have that as a hook. The fact that the other half of the coin represents a favor, and you don't want to have that favor asked from a particular person maybe if that coin is in the possession of that person that favor will be something that the pierce brosnan character will 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 be able to execute without you know sweating bullets or anything so enough for a tv audience to sort of sit there for four evenings and wow the half half coin thing but for for me that that was kind of interesting that they kept that tradition alive uh, whether or not that's pure realism still that they hand off business based on such tradition i i i wouldn't be able to say but uh, that's a decent enough hook i think yeah when all is said and done it gets a little bit tricky towards the third and fourth episode um, to keep track of um uh, all of those developments but still fairly coherent uh, throughout without uh, you know you scratching your head for 90 minutes uh, in the middle of it or anything and one point of correction I do need to make on the aspect of the coin. So I had remembered incorrectly that, because we talked about this in Taipan, this, the, the, the origin of this coin comes from a meeting between the Taipan Dirk Struen and the, uh, one of the Chinese trading emissaries, Jin Cha. And he's, Struen's gone to Jin Cha to get money to help bail him out. Um, yes. And along with the loan that he gets, um, who's not just from Jin Cha, but it's from a bunch of sort of other groups who've brought money together to help, you know, support the Taipan. Uh, he gives him this box of these four broken coins. And he, you know, he has one half of each of the four and then the other halves of each of the four go to different people who are apparently helping put forward this money. And with that, you know, goes the whole favor that is asked that gets relayed here. But Somewhere in my mind, I had thought that that scene um, was shown not with the Brian Brown character, but with the actor who had played Jin Cha, kind of showing him taking out the coins. But it's not here. They just It's just something they talk about. It wasn't shown in the Taipan movie, and it's not shown here. So 
a little bit of a correction on my part. Again, my old memory playing uh, tricks on me. It is interesting that it kind of, you know, again, touches back to this sense of connection to the things that were established in Taipan. And I think they do a pretty good job, too, of making reference back to a couple of the characters that we met in that film, such as um, Cullum, who's mentioned a few times, uh, who was Dirk Struan's son. They talk about Tyler Brock, who was Dirk Struan's rival. But the one who gets frequent mention is um, Tess, uh, who becomes Cullum's wife, who later becomes such a, you know, uh, what would you call her, an iron lady, uh, in the Noble House, she actually becomes a Taipan of the Noble House and refers to herself as Hag Struin because she becomes kind <laughs> of this hardliner, which is not something that you glean at all from the very mild, mild-mannered and quiet Tess that we're introduced to. You have that image of Kyra Sedgwick yeah. as Tess in that one. But as much as I dislike Taipan, I thought that was wonderful that whenever they touch back on those characters... I had an image of them at the very least from that damn movie and not just Brian Brown, but like, oh, yeah, his son and Tess and Tyler Brock. OK, cool. I know who they are talking of based on the flawed movie. So um, I don't know if what that says about Taipan or if it's just Noble House that uh, deserves all credit for that. But, uh, but yeah, you have a little connection there. Funnily enough, by the way, I, when I pulled up Wikipedia, apparently the miniseries was pr- produced by the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group and and one of the De Laurentiis was behind Taipan and that was, as we talked about, the major flop and now they have something at least better in quality mm. on screen uh, despite the small screen. So uh, maybe they were a bit more satisfied with uh, with this one. I, I I just wanted to briefly ask you, do, do you think like the, the whole tradition and the coin and the plot surrounding that, is that the hook for the show or is there interest in the company rivalry that's going on uh, between, you know, John Reese davis and Pierce Brosnan? Uh, like, what is the hook for you for, uh, during these six hours? Yeah, I think for me, the hook was more about the coin and kind of that, that subplot and a little bit on, you know, because it, it delves into this area with this kidnapper known as the the werewolf and uh, some other things. Then you get into this secondary subplot with uh, another character who's on the police force and his boss, played by the great Gordon Jackson, in in an almost a typecast role <laughs> as a police very superintendent. British, to, yes, to superintendent. very yeah. very policeman. <laughs> um, and you know, so for me, that was a lot more interesting than when they were you know, talking business and, and romancing and stuff. And uh, there's some points that I'll come back to on that. Let's talk a little bit, though, about the lead here. Mr. Not-quite-yet-at-this-point James Bond himself, Pierce Brosnan, who basically landed this role because he had not been able to play James Bond. Uh, he was contracted for a TV series that he had just uh, come off of called Remington Steel, and they had wanted him to play uh, James Bond, but because something in that contract prevented him from doing so, and they ended up going with Timothy Dalton. Timothy would play James Bond in two films until 1995, when Pierce would finally get a chance to do it with Goldeneye. So this was kind of an intermediary step for him, moving from a television series to miniseries before he could put on the, you know, the 007 tuxedo, as it were. Uh, how do you think he fared here? I've, he's okay, and most people are okay. I, I think it comes down to the fact that 
following this character as a businessman, it, it's not necessarily riveting, but you understand the basic plotting and that's fine. And he can be suave and have this rough, tough businessman exterior because you you have to lead. You know, you can't be a softie. And he can pull that off uh, and be suave and sort of um, uh, underplay. Um, and by and underplaying this case, I mean he he has he can or he almost wears his uh, intentions on the outside, but he he keeps he keeps it cool, he keeps his calm, and it's only when the movie goes into a little bit of overdrive during some dramatic developments where him and even other cast members that are quite solid throughout the the, the big acting that doesn't quite. Uh, uh, fall uh, fall into the same sort, sort of quality that the, the sort of calm, collected acting does. Because I think he looks he looks confident. He he moves in his environment very in a very competent and confident way. And uh, I don't I don't know what the what the impression was from uh, in viewers from watching Remington Steel if that was everybody going like ding 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 totally bond because i only know he was in it but i never really watched remington steel but in 1988 he's got enough um, mannerisms about him and enough uh, presence on screen to both carry this one and it's not a stretch to think that he can be 007 as well and uh, and he came to prove that quite well in uh, at least a couple of the movies I, i'm i'm not sure I was on board with every Bond he did, but it was certainly a, a nice debut. And um, yeah, he, he moves through this with uh, with uh, confidence. You, you can believe uh, that uh, that he's a Taipan for all for all intents and purposes, uh, but but all without it being this great character depth and portrayal. But it's um, you get the story beats and you get who he is and uh, you get how he needs to navigate this particular world and uh, and all of that. So, uh, yeah, only the bigger acting whenever that occurs, which is not often, is uh, is where everybody goes a little bit off the rails, you know, in a bad way. Yeah, and he, um, you know, in terms of connections here, I think, uh, you know, he actually get, makes it back to Hong Kong in 1997 with Tomorrow Never Dies, his uh, second appearance as James Bond. And we get a Jackie Chan connection, of course, with him last year in the 2017 film The Foreigner. Mm -hmm. um, so in a, an interesting little sort of back and forth we have with Mr. Bronson. I think that for me in the role, now from the text, he's the Ian Dunross character is actually much older. And they try to go for a middle ground here. But it something about his hair, it, it looks like they've dyed streaks in his hair or something that just doesn't sit right. It's like they're trying mm -hmm. to make him a little bit older than he actually looks. <laughs> just just spray it before <laughs> yeah. he goes on camera. Like, off you go, act. And so that, in, in, in a few scenes, that kind of stands out to me for some reason, but that might just be my OCD or something kicking in. Um, but I, I think he's fine. Uh, we can talk a little bit, too, about some of the other cast members that he stars with uh, Deva Raffin here as um, Casey Cholock, who ends up playing sort of his love interest. She's a um, second in charge, basically, at Parkon, this American company that he's trying to do a deal with to help basically bail his company out from a, a series of uh, financial mishaps. That is led by Ben Masters, who I he's done a lot of work. I don't really recall anything seeing him in anything. 
but uh, both of them are pretty much TV actors, I would say. Uh, and then we get the John Rice Davies character of Quillen Gaunt. And for me, this is where the exceptionality kind of comes into play because whenever John Rice Davies is on screen, it, it seems like he's acting for film, whereas everybody mm-hmm. else is kind of still on that TV level. <laughs> so for me, he I don't know what, it's just something about the his mannerisms and, and the way he performs, and perhaps it's because he's a bit larger than life at times. Um, he just really ups the ante, I think, um, whenever he's on screen. And, yeah, um, it, 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 there's no doubt that there's not going to be a back and forth in his character between ruthless and somewhat sympathetic, even during crisis moments. You kind of know he's a dirtbag. He's, he's not going to forget who his enemies are, even when when there's uh, natural disasters you know going on and and it's uh, he's a great actor but it's he's not elevating a lot here and it's so it's borderlining amusing without them intending for it to be amusing that there's a wonderful cut that, that that is a cut before commercial clearly because the two characters have had a a uh, uh, a piece of uh, heartfelt dialogue on the beach and then the camera pans to John Rhys Davis watching from afar and not laughing out loud but it's it's almost like they should have like (laughs) you'd be twirling his mustache exactly cut to commercial (laughs) after that Uh, so it's it's certainly not layered in that regard and normally all the performers are kind of uh, natural and their interaction is quite natural i kind of like the uh, the pierce brosnan ben masters and uh, deborah rafin their dialogue back and forth it's very um uh, kind of compelling to watch uh, them just navigate their environments that way and interact without it being show off the acting where it's uh, where it's Aaron Sorkin David Mamet dialogue we're not talking that kind of acting and I, I found that to be a little bit of a hook as well and it's only when uh, it becomes a little bit soap opera in style when certain characters are sidestepping customs and are bowing to desire and are willing to sidestep business where the writing and maybe we should point towards our author that that, that the writing becomes a little bit soap opera in style i'll do anything for you i want to be with you forever and ever so that's why this is never exceptional as such because there are some soap opera tropes and therefore that connects to bad guy acting tropes. I mean, heck, even a character has his uh, the brakes on his car are cut at one point, which is like, I've seen that a couple of times in, in drama, Paul. <laughs> uh, for, for once, a character like that doesn't die, though. Right. So, uh, at least that was the twist. So, I, I don't think it was at its strongest when being dramatic um, with certain characters. But the, the but the dramatic intent is not too bad if we're talking, you know, the Ben Masters character and the um, the Ramos character that the lady played uh, without spoiling too much. That intent isn't bad, but it feels a little bit too uh, soap opera in style for me. We should perhaps point our attention to some of the Asian American uh, or Asian talent, as it were, who make up a good portion of the cast. No true hong kong celebrities as such that get credited but there is one uncredited actor that some people have recognized and, and i'll leave it to you to 
uh, introduce who that is? Well, I might be talking out of my behind right now, but obviously I noticed because I'm me, and uh, that's not a bad, uh, that's not a good thing at all times. But uh, actually, Stuart Ong appears for a couple of scenes as a policeman in episode two, I believe. Uh, so that that matters to me. So he's a great actor. He's a, he's been doing work abroad as well, and you can see him in Hong Kong 1941 if you want to see him in in uh, good movies. But obviously he's one of the coxmen of uh, Category 3 movies because he's played a pervert and a tr- dangerous and ruthless tried boss in a plethora of Category 3 movies, and he's not always been nice. But um, clearly he was part of the talent pool they tapped because they found out or knew he could speak English very well because this is a sing-sound show all throughout, so they don't dub any... Any lo- any local talent or anything like that, which is um, um, which is very good. I, I actually um, w- when I saw uh, the credits, I, I recognized uh, Rick Young because it was not that long ago I watched the giant fat movie The Corruptor, where he played a bad guy, and I really like Rick Young in that one. He doesn't appear until episode four in this one, so that's why the credits at the top of every show is a bit misleading because all of those people they're not gonna appear right away. They're not gonna dump everyone on us and i yeah kind it's, of fear that because you like get over like be over already like i've seen the credits for two minutes and they're still like uh, twirling the coin at us and uh but, but thankfully they were sensible about how they roll out characters yeah it, it, and i think this is a little bit of the blame goes to 80s tv because mm-hmm. you know by showing that huge cast list at the beginning and you get again people like Rick Young. You also get uh, uh, John Hausman, who was really kind of famous at the time for some of the work he had done. And he's basically in one scene in for like two minutes in one episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's really kind of a they're they're trying to pull the audience in, saying, "Oh, John Hausman's in this," and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Oh, there he is. He's the governor, and that's it. And he's done. <laughs> he's out. Um, but yeah, you do get some uh, great. You know, small roles. Rick Young, as you mentioned, is here. People remember him from uh, movies like The Last Emperor, um, Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, Kiss of the Dragon. I mean, he's been a face in a lot of Hollywood films over the years. Um, sometimes, perhaps, people would say in a, in stereotypical Asian roles, but he's been a working mm-hmm. actor, and it's always good to see. And I think he has, he has a small but significant role here, and I really mm-hmm. liked his exchange with... Pierce Brosnan when they get to that because they kind of they're 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 talking in in ways that you know they each kind of want something they can't come out right out and, and say directly what they want um, but it's a it's it's well written and a well acted between the two yeah yeah isn't that like a fairly good hook for the movie to um, to see actors act and because makers need to adhere they, they if they want to have actors acting they need to adhere to the challenge of okay. All of that needs to have story hook. Audience need to know where we were, where we are, where we're going based on the interactions. And nothing of what we're showing is complicated. We're, we're showing people talking. And I'm, I'm getting a sense that you thought that was a fairly good, you know, uh, uh, something they kept up throughout uh, fairly well. Because it isn't flashy. It's just uh, a lot of dialogue shot in some chunks of this uh, whole series. Other actors we can point to. Uh, if you're a really old schooler, you might recognize uh, actor Kai Day, an actor who, over the years, he kind of got played in a lot of stereotypical roles in movies like The Manchurian Candidate, 
Um, he was Wofat on the original Hawaii Five O series. You kind of usually placed in that we need somebody who looks Asian to be an Asian bad guy. And as I understand it, I, don't, I think he's like actually Egyptian of, you know, he's kind of like mixed Anglo-Egyptian ancestry. Um, but he had that look that, you know, Hollywood kind of wanted to go to and they put him in role. So he's here as Four Finger Wu, who's um, a descendant of, I think, one of the, the, the pirate king or one of the big pirates who's a prominent role in mm. Taipan. You know, he's kind of working things in the background, trying to do deals with the Taipan, and he's a little bit, you know, kind of the triad representation, I guess, if you will, in some mm-hmm. ways here. Uh, who else? Uh, da, 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 da. You need to mention the the, the person that, in again, someone that might be have a huge part in the book, but had no idea what her purpose was here other than window dressing, and it's Tia Carrera. Yes. <laughs> very pre, er, pre very early. Yeah, pre Wayne's World and everything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she she's clearly she goes where the benefactors are, uh, but but clearly there must be something else to that character in the book. I hope anyway, because otherwise that's such a useless part as written, and they, she they give her nothing other than let's parade around a woman that uh, I can just give her jewelry and jewelry and she's mine and she'll she'll accept it because that's the character she is I thought that was weak source to be honest and and, uh, but yeah I I could conjure up images of uh, at least when I was watching something I didn't like uh, images of uh, of Wayne watching Tia Carrera in a dreamy way and dream weaver in Wayne's world (laughs) like at least I had that but that was weak I mean have you reached you think at all her parts in the book, the Venus Pooh no, character? No, not not yet. It's uh, nowhere nowhere to be found, at least in the first part of the book. So yeah, the first twenty um, hours, not. Yeah, <laughs> I remember a, 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 there might have been a Quan something in the credits, if not Nancy Quan. Well, yeah, like uh, yeah, of course, Nancy Quan uh, is there in a small role as uh, Ian Dunross's secretary. And we're going to come right, back and, and talk much more about her in a future episode. Uh, of course, making uh, Hong Kong very famous for her role, controversially so, in the uh, world of Susie Wong. Uh, also, uh, actress Lisa Liu, who has a small role in this. Um, she's actually appeared in a lot of Hollywood stuff, but she's actually got a couple roles in things like Lust Caution and Invisible Target. So she's one of the main character actors, I think, that has her foot kind of in, in both cinemas. Surprisingly, you don't get any kind of big Hong Kong names uh, thrown in this, and I guess perhaps because of budget and because they probably, you know, when they were doing the production, they figured they don't know who any of these people are anyway, so just go with people they had on file and whatever agencies they were uh, working through. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that Stuart Ong, as I said, he, he'd worked abroad anyway, so uh, he probably indeed uh, was on file rather than cost just out of Hong Kong, but uh, I do have to say that uh, if I were to pick any performer that I really enjoy watching it, and it's not one of the most sympathetic characters, but I really like Ben Masters as Link Bartlett, mm. who, co- who comes into this piece wanting to take over the Noble House. And he's he's calm and cool about it. He doesn't show any emotion in such, uh, as such. He's got a plan, and he's going to execute it. And he... You know, there's no particular performance style or anything, but it, he has a smooth way of delivering dialogue and a natural way of delivering dialogue. And even though the writing isn't as strong when he starts to, to deviate from his plan based on his emotional connection to another character, 
it's he still does okay for what it is you know he he seems like an actor because i'm not familiar with him that can elevate basic stuff fairly well because it looks like he's interested in uh, in being there so even the soap opera style scenes with uh, him and uh, the actress who played uh, Ramos uh, really should name uh, check her. Julia Nicholson. Jul- Nixon. He, yeah, that's right. Uh, Orlando Ramos. So yeah, they have a romantic connection. But uh, even those scenes, that do, it was kind of enjoyable because I liked the character enough where all of a sudden he's willing to you know, deviate from such a set plan of destroying the noble house. But he wasn't like a John Rhys-Davis character. Uh, this uh, kneading character that shows exactly on the on the surface who he is and what he wants. <laughs> um, so I, I enjoyed the performance style and uh, the writing a little bit more when connecting to um, to to him. And to to sort of wrap up my notes, I guess a little bit. But by the time part four comes around, it's a little bit more difficult for me. I don't know what you thought of uh, because it starts with a meeting at the racetrack, and now. Ian Dunross presents a deal that's quite complicated and yes it's understandable enough but there's a lot of threads all of a sudden if I do that do that do that that will happen I will have these people on my side and this and this and this so it's it if it's basic to follow that's uh, basic enough where you can understand it that's good enough but it's not riveting drama yeah. or anything by that point but it's it, it passes the time effectively despite all of that so, so i don't know what you thought in terms of that, that, that they were gearing up towards this implosion of drama or anything by part four yeah i think that's part of what doesn't necessarily work especially in sort of the main character drama between pierce and between ben masters and and deborah raffin and their respective characters because it's like the third time that Ian Dunross is at a gathering and he says, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? And he makes like some <laughs> announcement and everybody's like goes, oh, and it's just like, okay. <laughs> have it, another announcement. <laughs> <laughs> was it that exciting? You know, another deal uh, yeah. that I've just come up with on the fly and uh, it's going to change. It's going to change everything. I also want to make a quick mention too of uh, actor Burt Kwok, who plays Philip Chen. Also an Asian-American actor, been in a lot of stuff. And he's playing here the comprador of the noble house who's trying to get his son ready to take over that role. And he is the direct descendant of Gordon Chen, who was Dirk Struan's son um, from another wife, um, an Asian wife, in the Taipan novels and the movie. And in the movie, he was played by... Russell Wong. So here you have right, um, that's the, right. the direct character's family line continuing on sort of in their role, assisting and the noble house. When they started to connect things to Taipan, I started to feel a little bit more like I felt the historical connections all of a sudden became a little bit more interesting than what Taipan showed. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking noble house sort of reignited the fact that I want to go back to Taipan, not the movie, but I want to go back to the audiobook because I'm a bad reader, so I listen to audiobooks and sort of start from the beginning and see if there's um, uh, if there's um, something more riveting as as written and uh, the length of it uh, doesn't bother me. But uh, uh, so I, I'll, I'll give Noblehouse a huge huge credit for actually making me sort of like, yeah, I've seen that, and I I kind of dig that I've that there's a connection there. Uh, did, did, did I ever ask you if, uh, I mean, it's a daft question, but um, 
yeah, we know that's, that the Noble House isn't based on something called the Noble House, but it has a loose basis in an actual trading company, financial yeah. company yeah. that's still ongoing in Hong Kong. Or it is, Asia. although it's been, it's been, I guess, broken up a little bit, but it's called Jardines. And actually, the building that you see them going into with the round windows at a few points in Noble House, that's actually Jardines' house. Right. So the you know when they chose the filming locations, they were trying to kind of fit things in uh, appropriately. I, I would say there is that kind of basis. Jardines does exist today in some form, although I don't know who actually has control of the company because um, I don't. I, I think that the British side of it may not be quite as active, um, but it it still mm. exists in some part uh, as a company. Mm. And, and and is that all drama, by the way, the passing of uh, the favors that the broken coins uh, represents? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, as I understand it, there's a character in uh, the books that we don't see who's actually ref- representative of the author, James Clavell. And the one note that I found was that that character, um, you don't see him in the movie, but you do see his wife. So there's a scene where there's this big fire at the jumbo and there's a pregnant woman who has to jump off the top. That pregnant woman is the authors in the in the film universe who's representative of James Clavell. Um mm. so that's the that's the wife of of that author. My assumption is is that he spent enough time in Asia meeting people, movers and shakers at these levels and learning the history to shift things and, and to come up now whether the the coin thing is a is a real thing it feels like you know it could be something you know people mm. owing favors for favors that kind of thing i mean the exchange but maybe not that emphasized maybe. yeah i mean was was there actual physical coins you know who knows mm. It, it, mm. you know but the, but the, you know the kind of writing that he does the like i said the exchange between beers brosnan and rick young feels very much like if, okay, a guy's got to go to China and seek a favor from somebody who's a high official, what are they going to, how are they going to talk? That feels like that's how they would talk. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that I know that for sure, but it just feels like the kind of dialogue that would go on based on the way I've seen people talk around things before. And in the novels too, I mean, he's really throwing out dialogue, foul language, in, in Cantonese and stuff. So he knows his stuff. I mean, he, he you can tell he's very well researched on stuff that's going on and, and the cultural side of it. So it's not just a case of a a guy from the outside who, you know, just wanted to make a story about Hong Kong. Um, he, yeah. he knows Hong Kong. Um, so it's obvious that he spent enough time there to, to sort of soak in a lot of the cultural details. And, and and that's a good point at what you just mentioned because I, I was f- quite impressed by the amount of location work they do, and it isn't just let's show some tourist stuff and then look at us we're eating outside in Hong Kong. Look yeah. at us. No, but they there's a lot of cool location stuff that's that's supposed to act as contrasts in stories, meaning that some things takes place in you know. At uh, in the bowels of boats, and then obviously on the streets, and then you have the financial uh, sides of it all. So you have those uh, contrasts, and characters do move between each and every one of those sections, which I which I thought was cool. And 
I, I, I want to ask if, even though you lived in Hong Kong way past the production of this movie, were you at all uh, having fun location spotting or has it all changed dramatically since late 80s? I mean, yeah, when I had time, I would like to go out and, and do some location spotting, um, but a lot of it's changed. So much that gets um, renovated and, and things get redone and signs get taken down. Um, that even like the signage, the neon signage is under assault um, for being an eyesore and the government's trying to get it removed. And hmm. you have people going out and, you know, save uh, save the signage. There was a big push to save the clock tower at one point. There was a push save the to clock tower. <laughs> save the ferry crossing terminal because they wanted to move it from where it originally was. And, you know, it's just one of those things that people feel nostalgic about stuff and other people want to make money because they can when things change. So um, not to get political on it, but that's just the the nature of the society. It is interesting to look at this film, though, and and see some of the things that really date it, though. So, for example, the airport is Kai Tak Airport, which no longer exists. You see an airline called British Caledonian, which I had no idea (laughs) what that was. I had to look it up. It's actually, it was an actual airline that got bought up, I guess, basically by British Airways at a certain point. So it's like the old Pan Am in, in you know, or Eastern Airlines in the U.S. Um, it just, you know, it was there. It was big, prominent advertising for British Caledonian. And now that, that's just something that doesn't exist anymore. And they do one shot towards the end, which made me think, wow, there's some money there. Because today it would be so easily done with digital effects that you yeah. wouldn't think twice about it. But there's a shot of an airplane taking off from the airport with a big Parkon sign on it. And, I mean, this is the 80s. They To do that in post, I don't know if they could have done that necessarily. Maybe they did, no. but I'm thinking they just slapped a sign on a plane and they paid for the plane to take off and film it. And it um, must have. I mean, it's a T. Te- granted, the technical qualities of this is actually nigh on excellent in certain spots, especially the big set pieces, uh, both the fire in episode uh, two and then we have the natural disaster in the final episode all of that is excellent but i think still tv wasn't apt at doing like tracking moving objects and and putting things in post onto onto a plane because i, I thought of that as well because presumably parkon is fictional so they couldn't have had, like pulled a real plane with that logo on it and shot that so it was, it was sort of impressive looking it felt like yeah the parkon plane of this story is leaving <laughs> so yeah so um, it was rather cool and obviously the final shot is obviously there to to show off what a great view you can have of hong kong but hey who doesn't like a great view of yeah. hong kong so uh, as you mentioned uh one of the big set pieces of course is at the jumbo floating restaurant in aberdeen where they somehow set that puppy on fire and have people yeah. jump off the top of it. It's big, man. I mean, that looked mightily impressive for a TV production. Uh, and, and I mean, they, they didn't spend just the budget on that sequence. Like the entire production yeah. obviously is even in tone, but that, that was impressive looking because it's all physical. Yes, indeed. And I mean, if you've not seen the Jumbo Floating Restaurant before in a movie, you can go check out uh, Gen Y Cops and see Edison stand outside of it and go, yo, dog. Um, <laughs> oh, that was about the end of time where I actually exited the movies. I didn't have a chance to see that wonderful uh, piece of architecture on the water. But uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so 
Uh, you do mention also the um, the landslide, another big set piece that happens. We won't uh, reveal too many details about what exactly happens. But that, too, is another prominent kind of thing that happened all too frequently in Hong Kong. That's another plot point that we'll come and return to as well when we talk about uh, the world of Susie Wong. The idea of sort of, you know, housing and the problems with landslides and because of the mountainous nature of Hong Kong and when they get typhoons, the things that uh, can happen on occasion. I guess in terms of if I have to come down hard on Taipan in one area, um, if you understand the timeline, so initially we start off with a prologue that occurs roughly in 1985, but then the main plot of the story takes place across a period of a week in 1988. So you're talking about seven to eight days when all of this is happening. <laughs> so the one weak point for me is um, this romance that occurs between the Ben Masters character, Link Bartlett, the president of Parkon, and the Julie Nixon character, uh, Orlando Ramos. She is um, somebody who uh, we didn't mention too much about, uh, but deserves kind of specific mention. Uh, got famous, I think, for Rambo 2, Singaporean actress, and uh, has done quite a few roles over the years. And here, kind of much the same as Tia Carrere, she's being asked to be eye candy, but she's given some su substantial material to deal with. But my problem is the material she's dealing with is unfortunately somewhat problematic, I, I guess is the nice way to say it. Um, she is basically being used by Gaunt to try and throw Link Bartlett off his game. And initially she's okay with it, but then she actually starts having feelings. Um, it's very much a Susie Wong style romance because you have the Ben Masters Western American coming in and he's going to save her and rescue her and take her home and, you know, marry her and, and, and all that kind of good stuff. And at the same time, she's kind of playing the somewhat obedient but sexually open Asian woman. There's this whole thing where, you know, she's got this dialogue. And I used to play this clip for students in a gender studies class where she <laughs> says, you know, I can't give myself to you. So I offer you one of these ladies, you know, yeah. in my place and... You know, she's like, oh, we're not so hung up on the sexual morality like you people in the West. To us, it's uh, an act of giving and, and, you know, yada, yada. And it's just so hard to take some of it, some of the dialogue. Um, it's cringeworthy for me. And they use this term called pillowing instead of saying, okay, we're, you know, we're going to go to bed together. We're going to sleep together. going to have sexy time together. They call it pillowing because it's TV in the 80s and that's all you could do. Um <laughs> Because but, it's very, it, it almost comes off as um, willingly submissive, uh, yeah. very outspoken, but within the, re the realm of, uh, yeah. you know, the, the the TV rating is and intact. It's um, nothing to do with her performance per se. She's just, you know, much like Joan Chen in Taipan, she's just reading the script as she's given it. It's just the dialogue is just like, mm. oh, are people really going to talk like this? Um it's, it's really like it's really what, what I was referring to too. That those two, I think they're good together. But when they have the beach confrontation and confess love to each other, and uh, it's uh, it's not strong writing. It's all too familiar writing that you gotta be good to elevate that. And they are good, but they can't elevate uh, that type of uh, content. Yeah, and I, I guess for me, if there's a 
if the, if there's the weak point for me for this whole thing, it's this and their relationship, their dialogue, and particularly because it all happens within the span of a week. I mean, Link Bartlett basically meets her on like day one or day two, and by day seven, it's already you know there has been talk of I'm bringing you back to the America, and how hard is it to get married in Hong Kong? I'm like, really, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, the Ian Dunross. And Casey Chalock romance is not a part of the book. That's created as solely really? for the purpose of the series. In the wow. no- in the novel, Ian has a wife. He has a teenage daughter, and again, he's much older than Casey Chalock. So this th- was again something that they pushed to Remington steal it up, I guess, <laughs> and to make it a bit more of, uh, you know, this kind of dual romance between the characters, which I think, you know... Was she in the novel at all? Yeah, or? she she is. The, the character is definitely in the novel, and she's doing right. the same things. She's brokering the deal. And in fact, she's... Because she's a woman in a man's world, and it's set in the 60s, She's face, she faces a lot of, like, discrimination, like when she goes into the boardroom to set the deal, the board members who you see some of these as minor characters in the series but they're not really significant but in the book they have bigger roles they're board members of Struens and they really don't want to deal with her because she's a woman they're they're like you know kind of think it's a joke but she has to prove to them that she does have the authority to to make these deals on behalf of Parkon and everything and so it's a lot of her kind of you know dealing with that misogynist Mm -hmm. mentality especially that was present in the 60s so I guess it's a bit like I never watched it but the the series that's really popular around this period, I think it's called Mad Men, which deals with similar kinds of issues. You know, you do have that, that kind of romance, dual romance going on. I do think that the chemistry between Pierce and between Deborah worked fairly well for, you know, the creation of that. Um, but just, again, some of that dialogue. Every, every time I hear the word pillowing, I'm just like, <laughs> who talks like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, for some reason, the, the term... Uh flew over my head or i just missed it but but yeah it's uh it, it goes quick i mean the fire is you know two three days in and a couple of days later all of these this emotional content has happened and plus they have a natural disaster at the end of the week as well so the book uh, can't be structured that way right uh during the course of a week the book must be expand more expensive well they don't see here because they give us like every time they do go to commercial break and come back to a different scene they're throwing the date up in our face and I don't think the book really directly gives that semblance of time, but I think it's still supposed to be pretty much along a similar timeline. Right. It, it seemed like a little bit of an odd um, sort of uh, novelty kind of thing that we're going to set it over the course of a week. I, I don't know why they were so hardcore about that. Again, because of the book maybe, but they seem, they seem very uh, intent on like, getting it done. A character's going to change, damn it, in a week. Uh, was there was there a part besides, because you did mention, like, the business thing, and it's interesting because they have John Rhys-Davies, what looks to be the actual flow, trading floor in Hong Kong, of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. But then mm-hmm. they do these reverse shots of, like, Ian Dunross looking down at him. I'm I'm thinking those two, the, that may not have been in the same building. One might have been North Carolina, and they might have just had John Rhys-Davies there in Hong Kong. Um, well, well, it's still uh, very seamless. I yeah, think. very seamless. But um, again, you know, a lot of the business th- side of it, short selling and trying to trap 
I have no idea what that meant. I mean, that's a thing where, yes, I'm not smart enough to get that, but the, the most of the audience are general audience too. So as makers, you have to, without being simplified about it, get us to understand the, the beats mm. that well, what Gaunt wants, what Ian Dunross wants, why are they rivals? And they, they do that fairly well, but when they talk about sell 20,000 this and this and uh, exchange that and da, 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 it's it's not something that uh, I, I can absorb because I'm, I'm not smart enough to do so. But the, the miniseries isn't hinging on this being six hours of uh, trade talk or right, anything. Right. And, and so it's it, it, they, they balance that stuff fairly well. I mean, what is it, like two scenes at the stock exchange? Yeah. So, I mean, they, they don't have it as a, a centerpiece uh, for each and every episode. I guess the last thing to kind of wrap up with, too, is one of the other subplots that deals with um, the character of Brian, Brian Kwok, who's a young uh, police inspector working under the Gordon Jackson character, and he kind of becomes a centerpiece of the subplot when things surrounding him get revealed, um, that we won't spoil. He's played by actor Lim K. Tong, another uh, Singaporean actor who's uh, done a considerable amount of work over the years as well. And did that make sense to you as it kind of came to a head What where that thread was going? And Because one of the things that I think the book does better is it gives more time to the characters so you actually have some exchanges extra exchanges with like Ian Dunross and Brian that they know each other pretty well that they just don't have time for uh, in the series. So I'm wondering from your perspective, did it seem weird that like Ian was kind of sticking his neck out for Brian at a certain point? I I think you're spot on because you, you are with that because of how it all plays into the kidnapping and then you have the the reveal that Brian Kwok might not be who he is, and you you with it until that point. You you understand why why Ian Dunross is involved in trying to untangle the whole kidnapping business. But by the back end of uh, when they wrap up these stories, the Brian Kwok stories and how it connects to Ian Dunross, I'm glad you brought it up because I I didn't make a note of it. I was quite unclear of why indeed he had to stick out his neck and why. His plans, Ian Dunross's um, personal plans, hinged on whatever happened to Brian Quark. So that was quite lost on me, if I'm being honest. And I think you're, you're right in saying that they just have didn't have time to properly tie that bow, uh, tie that bow properly. Maybe you encountered it in the book, that subplot, uh, more distinctly, but uh, it felt a little bit, uh, well, I guess everything's all right now, if you say so, <laughs> TV movie. <laughs> You know, so yeah. By the end, uh, they they pretty much have wrapped up all the the various subplot threads um, into a fairly neat ending. You know, package and and epilogue. I would say that the overall ride flows fairly well. You know, it's fairly yeah. snappy. I never really felt. I mean, even though I've seen this a few times over the years, I never really felt bored. Kind of knowing the plot, I, I get to look for smaller and smaller details now and each time, and try and do some location spotting and and things like that. So. Um, again, I do. I, I think for me, I'm really appreciative of the fact that they, the production crew, did take the time to go and try and shoot this on the ground in Hong Kong as much as possible. Um, and again, it's surprising the amount of attention to detail that they do provide here, even for 
uh, miniseries. Unfortunately, I, as we said, did not do quite as well as I guess they had expected, so we did not get subsequent tellings of other James Clavell works like um, King Rat and Whirlwind. And I think I mentioned last time, I mean, you know, hey, Netflix, you've got a lot of source material here that uh, is, is perfect for, uh, you know, kind of going back and getting deeper into, if that's the kind of thing you like to do. I, I know it'd be expensive content because a lot of it's very dated. I mean, even with Noble House, a lot of this is taking place in the 60s. Because they move it to the 80s, there is a brief reference to 97 and the handover in a few places because in the 60s they were dealing with very different things between the riots in Hong Kong and and um, communist sensibilities and a lot of the stuff that was happening in China. And I think it makes a nice transplant into the 80s and is fairly entertaining. So uh, that's my final thoughts. Uh, Kenneth? Well, I guess Netflix could start up a little fund if they just... Um take uh, Kevin Spacey's salary for House of Cards and put that into the Noble House Fund, then we start somewhere, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not coming back. So we, we, we've got a few million dollars at least to get us started to do a little uh, uh, little location scouting trip or whatever. But yeah, you know, they've done, uh, they're not shy in terms of, um, like all the Netflix originals, they aren't like, safe and tried scenarios i mean for heaven's sake i don't think marco polo necessarily is what's gonna get viewers like all right marco polo but rather that's uh you know that that's taking a chance on something that might and might not work and for as far as i heard marco polo was not a bad uh, season or two of um of netflix t- uh, tv making so to say so you know it's not out of the realm of uh, possibility availability um, we can talk about. This was not available for a long time. A little bit of honesty on the table. I actually had a bootleg of this <laughs> for a on, couple on of years. V- on, v- on VHS? Or I, on it, no, it was on DVD, <laughs> but it, I'm pretty sure it was a VHS transfer of some sort. Um, the quality was not so great, but um, it was something that I had long wanted to have because I'd long wanted to rewatch it. And one of the things about these series is that they did not get a lot of replay. I think Shogun got replayed once or twice over the years, um, but Noble House did not, I guess, because it was not seen as a uh, super success. But then it did get uh, a release on DVD. I remember I snapped it up right when it, it dropped on uh, Amazon. And it also has uh, streaming versions available on Amazon that you can purchase pretty cheaply for the for the for for all four, considering it's like basically four-length, full-length movies. And I, they are listed as quote-unquote HD on that, but I'm pretty sure it's just a kind of upscaled version. So uh, your miles may vary if you're looking, you know, there, there hasn't been a remastered version as far as I know to date. Well, well still the DVD version looks actually great. Uh, the, the colors pop, pop, and they, they've done some something to the transfer for sure. And uh, I, when I was watching it, I noticed that it was, um, the format was widescreen. And I thought to myself, hey, this is TV in the 80s. No one did widescreen. So have they gone and artificially uh, cropped this? And are we going to get like tight shots with heads at the top of frames and all of that? And funnily enough, as far as I read, it was shot for a regular TV standard, 1.33. And the matting to 1.66 was actually sort of carefully considered. And it looks actually as natural as... As anything, you know, it looks like it was shot in 
with letterboxing in, in mind in, in widescreen. And uh, so the compositions do not look yeah, compromised as such. And that's how the um, presumably the streaming version is uh, available to it in the same in the same way rather than an older TV master. So uh, so don't, don't be put off by the fact that it is in widescreen. And sort of the final note on this, what would be your recommendation? I mean, even though these productions were not directly correlated, you did mention that there is is um, some connection with the De Laurentiis family being involved. And, the, you know, you do see images of the older characters like Dirk Struen and, and Tess Brock and others in painting form, and they don't really look like the actors who played him in Taipan. But would, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Like, Does that guy look like Ryan Brown? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think that uh, these two complement each other well enough? Would you recommend people watch the Taipan film first and then watch this? Or do you think it's okay if they just want to approach this by itself? I, I think the latter, to be honest, because Taipan is not necessarily a well con- well, well, the co- the concept is good and production quality is amazing, but uh, it it, do- it doesn't bring it home at all. I mean, it start with Noble House if the if the historical connections is something that appeals to you, then by all means watch Taipan. But sort of if you want to really explore it, then do what I'm gonna do eventually. Um, go for the books, man, because I think I'm thinking if you have an interest in the modern aspect of it then the books are going to provide the interest from a historical perspective as he weaves his story because it seems like he uh, is weaving a, a bit of a story across um, three or four, well, we, we say novels, obviously, they're massive. Uh, but um, I, I would do that myself because Taipan the movie, it's only, technically, it's the only way it's going gonna, it's gonna to pop. And it's nothing bad. Uh, in terms of uh, that, like w- w- watching something that really does its job well technically is great, but um, the, the story comes and goes in that one. So uh, watch Noble House, easy watch, and then pick up uh, one of the books, whether whether uh, Taipan or the Noble House book itself. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the Hollywood on Hong Kong subseries of the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources across the net, but we do get a lot of information from lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database, and we get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook at eastswests. As always, I would like to urge you to follow along with Mr. Kenny B., and that's Kenneth Browerson, not uh, Kenny B., the actor, but you can follow him too. Uh, but please follow along with Ken and all that he does. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? We're available on podcastonfire.com, uh, if we didn't mention it, and all the uh, social media links are available on our site, including Twitter, which is at Podcast on Fire. And uh, we didn't mention either that. We, we do a ton of other shows as well, focusing on Japanese, Korean cinema, sleazy cinema from Hong Kong and Taiwan. We've done shows on ninjas and uh, the wacky world of Richard Harrison movies. And, uh, you know, you want to hear the story of what Richard Harrison thought about 
been uh, put into way too many movies than contractually obligated to uh, to be in, then we tell that story over on one of our shows. So uh, plenty of shows to choose from, even if you only pick, so to say, Podcast on Fire. And if you've been a past listener, thank you. If you, you're going to be a new listener, thank you very much. So uh, podcastonfire.com it is. All right, excellent. So please do check out them and all the great work that's done over there. For our next show, uh, which should be coming in a month or so, um, once we settle a time to sit down and record it, we're going to be continuing and closing out our sub-series on this Hollywood on Hong Kong series on Colonial Hong Kong with the uh, 1998 film, so we're you know a decade later, Wayne Wang's Chinese Box, uh, starring Jeremy Irons and Gong Li and a somewhat famous Hong Kong comedy actor that uh, mm-hmm. many people may recognize. So we'll look forward to that, all of that and more on that particular episode. Until then, this is the uh, Hollywood on Hong Kong series of East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, be the best Taipan that you can be. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Uh-huh.